Book Three, Three Legs in the Afternoon. I drift through dreaming, since I am not mortal. There are no nightmares. I never find myself naked in front of a crowd, because that would never bother me. I would waggle my genitals at them, just to see the shock on their faces. Most of what I dream is memory, probably because I have so many of them. Images of parents and children, Nahadoth, shaped like some sort of great star-flecked beast, lies curled in a nest of ebon sparks. This is in the days before mortals. I am a tiny thing, half hidden in the nest's glimmers. An infant. I huddle against her for comfort and protection, mewling like a new kitten, and she strokes me and whispers my name possessively. Shahar again. The matriarch, not the girl I know. She is younger than in my last dream, in her twenties perhaps, and she sits in a window with an infant at her breast. Her chin is propped on her fist. She pays little attention to the babe as it sucks. Mortal, this child. Fully human. Another human child sits in a basket beside her. Twins. Tended by a girl in priest's robes. Shahar wears robes too, though hers are finer. She is high-ranking. She has borne children as her faith demands, but soon she will abandon them when her lord needs her. Her eyes are ever on the horizon, waiting for dawn. Anifa, in the fullest glory of her power, all her experiments, all the tests and failures, have reached the pinnacle of success at last. Merging life and death, light and dark, order and chaos, she brings mortal life to the universe, transforming it forever. She has been giving birth for the past billion years. Her belly is an earth of endless vastness and fecundity, rippling as it churns forth life after life after life. We, who have already been born, gaze upon this geysering wonder in worshipful adoration. I come to her, bringing an offering of love, because life needs that to thrive. She devours it greedily, and arches, crying out in agony and triumph as another species bursts forth. Magnificent. She gropes for my hand because her brothers have gone off somewhere, probably together, but that's all right. I am the oldest of her godchildren, a man grown. I am there for her when she needs me, even if she does not need me very often. Myself. How strange. I sit on a bed in the first sky in mortal flesh, confined to it by Maddie Tempest and my dead mother's power. This is in the early years, I can tell, when I fought my chains at every turn. My flesh still bears the red wheels of a whip, and I am older than I like, weakened by the damage, a young man. Yet I sit beside a longer, larger form whose back is to me, male, adult, naked, mortal, black hair, a tangled mass. Sickly white skin, Ahad, who had no name back then. He is weeping. I know the way shoulders shake during sobs. And I, I do not remember what I have done to him. But there is guilt as well as despair in my eyes. Yani, who has never borne a child as mortal or goddess, yet who became my mother the instant she met me. She has the nurturing instincts of a predator. Choose the most brutal of mates, destroy anything that threatens the young, raise them to be good killers. Yet compared to Anifa, 
She is a fountain of tenderness, and I drink her love so thirstily that I worry she will run out. She never has. In mortal flesh, we curled on the floor of the wind harp chamber, laughing, terrified of the dawn and the doom that seems inevitable, yet which is, in fact, only the beginning. Anifa again. The great quickening is long done. These days she makes few new children, preferring to observe and prune and transplant the ones she already has on the nonillion worlds where they grow. She turns to me and I shiver and become a man by her will. Though by this point I have realized that child is the most fundamental manifestation of my nature. Don't be afraid, she says when I dare to protest. She comes to me, touches me gently. My body yields and my heart soars. I have yearned for this so long, but I am dying. This love will kill me. Get it away, oh gods, I have never been so afraid. Forget. 13. One for sorrow, two for joy, three for a girl, four for a boy, five for silver, six for gold, seven for a secret, never to be told. Mortal life is cycles, day and night, seasons, waking and sleep. This cyclical nature was built into all mortal creatures by Anifa, and the humans have refined it further by building their cultures to suit. Work, home, months become years, years shift from past to future. They count endlessly, these creatures. It is this which marks the difference between them and us, I think, far more than magic and death. For two years, three months, and six days, I lived as ordinary a life as I could. I ate, I slept, I grew healthier, taking pains to make myself sleek and strong, and dressed better. I contemplated asking Glee Shoth to arrange a meeting between myself and Etempus. I chose not to, because I hated him and would rather die. Perfectly ordinary. The work was ordinary, too, in its way. Each week, I traveled wherever Ahad chose to send me, observing what I could, interfering where I was bidden. Compared to the life of a god, well, it was not boring, at least. It kept me busy. When I worked hard, I thought less. That was a good and necessary thing. The world was not ordinary, either. Six months after I'd met her, and three months after the birth of her latest lamented son, Usaindar's father died of the lingering illness that had incapacitated him for some while. Immediately afterward, Usaindar got herself elected as one of the High North delegates. She traveled to Shadow in time for the consortium's voting season, whereupon her first act was to give a fiery speech openly challenging the existence of Shadow's delegate. No other single city had a delegate on the consortium. And everyone knows why, Usain declared. Then dramatically, according to the new scrolls, turned to glare into the eyes of Remeth Arameri, who sat in the family box above the consortium floor. Remeth said nothing in reply, probably because everyone did know why. And there was no point in her confirming the obvious. Shadow's delegate was in fact Sky's delegate, little more than another mouthpiece, through which the Arameri could make their wishes known. This was nothing new. What was new was that Usain's protest was not struck down by the consortium overseer, 
and that several other nobles, not all northerners, rose to voice agreement with her, and that in the subsequent secret vote, nearly a third of the consortium agreed that Shadow's delegate should be abolished. A loss, and yet a victory. Once upon a time, such a proposal would never have even made it to a vote. It was not a victory so much as a shot across the bow. Yet, the Aramary did not respond in kind, as the whispers predicted in the arms of night parlor and the back of the bakery and even at the dinner table with Hemin's family each evening. No one tried to kill Usain Dar. No mysterious plagues swept through the stone-maze streets of Arabaya. Darn Blackwood and herbal rarities continued to fetch high prices on the open and smugglers' markets. I knew what this meant, of course. Remeth had drawn a line somewhere, and Usain simply had yet to cross it. When she did, Remeth would bring such horrors to Dar as the land had never seen, unless Usain's mysterious plans reached fruition first. Politics would never be interesting enough to occupy the whole of my attention, however. And as the days became months and years, I felt ever more the weight of unfinished, childishly avoided business upon my soul. Eventually, one particular urge became overwhelming, and on a slow day, I begged a favor of Ahad. Surprisingly, he obliged me. Deka was still at the Lataria. That I hadn't expected. After Shahar's betrayal, I had braced myself to find him in sky somewhere. She had done it to get him back, hadn't she? Yet, when Ahad's magic settled, I found myself in the middle of a classroom. The chamber was circular, a remnant of the Lataria's time as part of the Order of Etempus, and the walls were lined by slate covered in chalk renderings, pieces of sigils with each stroke carefully numbered, whole sigils lacking only a stroke or two and strange numerical calculations that apparently had something to do with how scriveners learned our tongue. I turned and blinked as I realized I was surrounded by white-clad children. Most were Amun, ten or eleven years old, all set cross-legged on the floor, with their own slates or pieces of reed paper in their laps. All of them gaped at me. I put my hands on my hips and grinned back. What? Your teacher didn't tell you a godling was dropping by? An adult voice made me turn, and then I, too, gaped as the children did. No, drawled Descartes from the lectern. We're doing show and tell next week. Hello, Sia. Deka wore black now. I had been surprised by this, but that was not the only shock. I stole little looks up at him. He was much taller than me now. As we walked through a brightly lit, carpeted corridor lined with the busts of dead scriveners, his stride was easy, unhurried, confident. He did not look at me, though he must have noticed me watching him. I tried to read his expression and could not. Despite his exile from Skye, he had still mastered the classic Aramary detachment, blood told. Oh, yes, it did. He looked like a hod. Demon-shitting, hell-spawned, yany-loving rat-bastard Ahad. So many things made sense now. So many more did not. The resemblance was so strong as to be undeniable. Deka was an inch or two shorter than Ahad, leaner and somewhat unfinished in the manner of young men. He wore his hair short and plain, where Ahad's was long and elaborate. 
Deka looked more Amun, too. Ahad's features leaned more toward the high norther template. But in every other way, and particularly in this new aura of easy, dangerous strength, Deka might as well have been made as Ahad had, sprung to life from his progenitor, with no mother in the way to gum things up. Yet that could not be, because if Ahad was some recent ancestor of Descartes, then that meant Descartes and Shahar, and whichever of their parents carried Ahad's blood, were demons. Demon's blood should have killed me the day we'd made the oath of friendship. And not like this, slowly, cruelly. I had seen what demon's blood did to gods. It should have snuffed out the light of my soul like water on a candle flame. Why was I still alive at all, much less in this hobbled form? I groaned softly, and at last, Dega glanced over at me. Nothing, I said, rubbing my forehead, which felt as though it should ache. Just nothing. He uttered a low chuckle of amusement. My sweet little Dega was a baritone now, and not at all little anymore. Was he still sweet? That was something only time could tell. Where are we going? I asked. My laboratory. Oh, so they let you use one by yourself? He had not stopped smiling. Now he developed a smug air. Of course, all teachers have their own. I slowed, frowning up at him. You mean you're a full scrivener? Already? Shouldn't I be? The course of study isn't that difficult. I finished it a few years back. I remembered the wistful, shy child he had been, so unsure of himself, so quick to let his sister take the lead. Could it be that here, beyond the shadow of his family's disapproval, he had unleashed that wild cleverness of his? I smiled. Still the arrogant Aramary, in spite of everything. Dicka glanced at me, his smile fading just a little. I'm not Aramary, Sia. They threw me out, remember? I shook my head. The only way to truly leave the Aramary is to die. They'll always come back for you, otherwise. If not for you, for your children. Hmm. True enough. We had turned a corner in the meantime and headed down another carpeted corridor. And now Deka led me up a wide, bannistered stairwell. Three girls, carrying reed pens and scrolls, bobbed in polite greeting as they came down the stairs and passed us. All three blushed or batted their eyes at Deka. He nodded back regally. As soon as they were out of sight around the corner, I heard their burst of excited giggling and felt a flicker of my old nature respond. Crushes, like butterfly wings against the soul. At the top of the stairs, Deka unlocked and opened a pair of handsome wooden doors. Inside, the room was not what I expected. I had seen the first Scrivener's laboratory in Sky, a stark, forbidding place of white gleaming surfaces that held only ephemeral touches of color, like black ink or red blood. Deka's lab was darwood, deep and brown, and gold chelin marble. Octagonal in shape, four of its walls were nothing but books. Floor to ceiling, shelves, each stacked two or three deep with tomes and scrolls and even a few stone or wooden tablets. Wide flat work tables dominated the center of the room, and something odd, a sort of glass-enclosed booth, stood on the room's edge at the juncture of two walls. 
yet there were no tools or implements in sight, other than those used for writing. No cages along the wall, filled with specimens for experiments, no lingering scent of pain. I looked around the room in wonder and confusion. What the hell's kind of scrivener are you? Deka closed the door behind me. My specialty is godling lore, he said. I wrote my concluding thesis on you. I turned to him. He stood against the closed doors, watching me. For an instant in his stillness, he reminded me of Nahadoth as much as Ahad. All three had that same habit of unblinking intensity, which in Ahad covered nihilism, and in Nahadoth covered madness. And Deka, I had no idea what it meant. Yet. You don't think I tried to kill you then? I said. No. It was obvious something went wrong with the oath. One knot of tension eased inside me. The rest stayed taut. You don't seem surprised to see me. He shrugged, ducking his eyes, and for a moment I saw a hint of the boy he'd been. I still have friends in Sky. They keep me informed of events that matter. Very much still the Aramary, whatever his protestations to the contrary. You knew I would be coming then. I guessed, especially when I heard about your leaving two years ago. I expected you then, actually. He looked up, his expression suddenly unreadable. You killed first Scrivener Shavir. I shifted from one foot to another, slipping my hands into my pockets. I didn't mean to. He was just in the way. Yes, you do that a lot. I've realized from studying your history, typical of a child, to act first and deal with the consequences later. You're careful to do that, act impulsively, even though you're experienced and wise enough to know better. This is what it means to live true to your nature. I stared at him, flummoxed. My contacts told me you were angry with Shahar, he said. Why? I set my jaw. I don't want to talk about it. You didn't kill her, I see. I scowled. What do you care? You haven't spoken to her for years. Deka shook his head. I still love her. But I've been used as a weapon against her once already. I will not let that happen again. He pushed away from the door abruptly and came toward me. And so flustered was I by his manner that I took a step back before I caught myself. I will be her weapon instead, he said. It took me a shamefully long time, all things considered, to realize that he had spoken to me in the first tongue. What the hells are you doing? I demanded, clenching my fist to keep from clapping a hand over his mouth. Shut up before you kill us both. To my shock, he smiled and began to unfasten his overshirt. I've been speaking magic for years, Sia, he said. I can hear the world and the stars as gods do. I know when reality listens closest, when even the softest word will awaken its wrath or coax it into obedience. I don't know how I know these things, but I do. Because you are one of us, I almost said. But how could I be sure of that? His blood hadn't killed me. I tried to understand even as he continued undressing in front of me. Then he got his overshirt open. I knew before he'd unlaced the white shirt underneath. The characters glowed dark through the fabric. Black markings, dozens of them, marched along most of his upper torso and shoulders, 
beginning to make their way down the flat planes of his abdomen. I stared, confused. Scriveners marked themselves whenever they mastered a new activation. It was the way of their art. They put our powerful words on their fragile mortal skin, using will and skill alone to keep the magic from devouring them. But they used ordinary ink to do it, and they washed the marks off once the ritual was done. Deka's marks, I saw at once, were like Aramary blood sigils, permanent, deadly. And they were not scrivening marks. The style was all wrong. These lines had none of the spidery jaggedness I was used to seeing in Scrivener work. Ugly, but effective. These marks were smooth and almost geometric in their cleanliness. I had never seen anything like them, yet they had power, whatever they were. I could read that in the swirling interstices of their shapes. There was meaning in this, as multi-layered as poetry and as clear as metaphor. Magic is merely communication, after all. Communication and conduits. This is something we have never told mortals. Paper and ink are weak structures on which to build the framework of magic. Breath and sound aren't much better. Yet we godlings willingly confine ourselves to those methods because the mortal realm is such a fragile place. And because mortals are such dangerously fast learners. But flesh makes for an excellent conduit. This was something the Aramary had learned by trial and error, though they'd never fully understood it. They wrote contracts with us onto their foreheads for protection, calling them blood sigils as if that was all they were. And we could not kill them, no matter how badly worded they were. Now Deka had written demands for power into his skin, and his flesh gave the words meaning. He had written it in a script of his own devising, more flexible and beautiful than the rough speech of his fellow scriveners, and the universe would not deny him. He had made himself not quite as powerful as a god. His flesh was still mortal, and the marks had only limited meaning, but surely more powerful than any scrivener who had ever lived. I had an inkling that his markings would be more effective than even the northerner's masks. Those were only wood and God's blood, after all. Deka was more than that. My mouth fell open and Deka smiled. Then he closed his undershirt. How? I asked, but I could guess. Demon and Scrivener. A combination we had already learned to fear, channeled here toward a new purpose. Why? You? He said very softly. I was planning to go find you. There was fortunately a small couch nearby. I sat down on it, dazed. We exchanged stories. This was what Deka told me. Shahar had been the one to suggest his exile. In the tense days after our oath and the children's injury, the clamors for Deka's execution had run loud in the halls of Sky. There were still a dozen or so full bloods and twenty or thirty high bloods altogether. In the old days, they had not mattered because the family head's rule had been absolute. These days, however, the high bloods had power of their own. Some of them had their own pet scriveners, their own pet assassins. A few had their own pet armies. If enough of them banded together and acted against Remeth, she could be overthrown. This had never happened in all the two millennia history of the Aramary, but it could happen now. But when they had demanded Deka's death, Shahar had spoken for him. 
as soon as she was well enough to talk. She had gone toe-to-toe with Rimeth, an epic debate, Decca called it, all the more impressive because one of its combatants was eight years old, and gotten her to acknowledge that exile was a more suitable punishment than death. Decca could never win enough support to become heir now, even if his looks could somehow be overcome. He would be forever branded by the stigma of failure. And Shahar needed him alive, she had argued, so as to have one advisor whose prospects were so truncated, so hopeless, that he would have no choice but to serve her faithfully in order to survive. Rimeth had agreed. I imagine, dear sister, will fill this in when I go back, Deka said then, touching his semi-sigil with a soft sigh. I nodded slowly. He was probably right. So Deka had left Sky for the Lataria. The first few months of his exile had been misery, for with a child's eyes, he had seen only his mother's rejection and his sister's betrayal. He had not reckoned, however, on one crucial thing. I am happy here, he said simply. It isn't perfect. There are cliques and bullies, politics, unfairness like anywhere. But compared to Sky, this is the gentlest of heavens. I nodded again. Happiness has healing power. Between that and the wisdom brought by maturity, Deka had come to realize what Shahar had done for him, and why. By then, however, several years had passed during which he returned all her letters, until she'd finally stopped sending them. It would have been dangerous in the extreme to resume communication at that point, because any of Shahar's rivals, who were surely watching her mailings, would know that Deka was once again her weakness. There was strength in the fact that she could pretend not to love him, and point to her hand in his exile as proof. And as long as Deka pretended not to love her back, they were both safe. I shook my head slowly, though, troubled by his plan. Love could not be conditional. I had seen the danger of that too often. Conditions created a chink in otherwise unbreakable armor, left a fatal flaw in the perfect weapon. Then the armor broke at precisely the wrong time. The weapon turned against its wielder, Deka and Shahar's game could so easily turn real. But it was not my place to say that, because they were still children enough to learn best through experience. I could only pray to Nahadoth and Yaini that they would not learn this lesson in the most painful way. After our talk, Deka rose. An hour or so had passed. Beyond the laboratory windows, the sun had moved through noon into afternoon. I was hungry again, damn it but no one had brought food. Perhaps there were no servants in this place where learning created its own hierarchy. As if guessing my thought, though my stomach had also rumbled loudly, Deka went to a cabinet and opened a drawer, taking out several flat loaves of bread and a chub of dry sausage. He began slicing this on a board. So why have you come? It can't just have been to see an old friend. He still thought of me as a friend. I tried not to let him see how this affected me. I did just want to see you, believe it or not. I wondered how you turned out. You can't have wondered all that hard, since it took you two years to come. I winced. After Shahar, what happened with her, I mean, I didn't want to see you because I was afraid that you would be like her. Deka said nothing, still working on the food. I thought you would be back in Sky by now, though. Why? Shahar, she made a deal with your mother to bring you home. 
and you thought I would go as soon as my sister snapped her fingers? I faltered silent, confused. I sat there. Deka turned back to me and brought the sausage and bread over, setting it before me as if he were a servant and not an Aramary. No poor man's gristle and scraps here, I found when I took a slice. The sausage was sweet and redolent of cinnamon, bright yellow in color per the local style. The Lataria might make Remeth Aramary's son serve his own food, but the food was at least suited to his station. He'd brought a flask of wine, too, light and strong, of equal quality. Mother sent a letter shortly after you left Skye, inquiring as to when I might return, Deka said, sitting in the chair across from me and taking a slice of meat for himself. He swallowed and uttered a short, sour laugh. I responded with a letter of my own, explaining that I intended to remain until I completed my research. I bursted out laughing at his audacity. You told her you'd come back when you were good and ready, is that it? And she didn't force you home? No. Deka's expression darkened further. But she had Shahar write to me, asking the same question. And you said? Nothing. Nothing? He sat back in his chair, crossing his legs and toying with the glass of wine in his fingers. I didn't like that pose for him. It reminded me too much of Ahad. There was no need. It was a warning. Shahar's letter said, I am told the standard course of your study at the Lataria is ten years. Surely you can finish your research within that time? A deadline. He nodded. Two years to wrap up my affairs here and go back to Sky, Or no doubt... Mother's willingness to let me return would expire. He spread his hands. This is my tenth year. I thought of what he'd told me and shown me. The strange new magic he'd developed, his vow to become Shahar's weapon. You're going back then. I leave in a month, he shrugged. I should arrive by midsummer. Two months traveling time? I frowned. The Lataria was a sovereign territory within the sleepy agrarian land of Wiru in southern Sinem. That way, only a few farmers would die if the place ever blew to the heavens. Sky was not that far. You're a scrivener. Draw a gate sigil. I don't actually need to. The Lataria has a permanent gate that can be configured to skies, but to travel that way would make it seem as though I was afraid of assault. There is a family pride to consider, and more importantly, I will not slink to sky quietly, like a bad dog finally allowed back into the house. He sipped from his glass of wine. Over the rim, his eyes were dark and colder than I'd ever expected to see. Let mother and the rest of them see what they have chosen to create by sending me here. If they will not love me, fear is an acceptable substitute. For a moment, I was stunned. This was not at all the Deka I remembered. But then, he was no longer a child and he had never been a fool. He knew as well as I did what he was going back to in Sky. I could not blame him for hardening himself to prepare for it. But I did mourn just a little for the sweet boy I'd first known. At least he had not become what I'd feared, though, a monster worthy only of death. Yet. At my silence, Deka glanced up, gazing at me just a moment too long. Did he sense my unease? Did he want me to feel uneasy? So, what will you do? I asked. I fought the urge to stammer. He shrugged, 
I informed Mother that I would be traveling overland and made note of the route. Then I sent it by standard courier, with only the usual privacy sigils in the seal. I whistled with the lightheartedness that I didn't feel. Every high blood in Sky will have seen it then. I frowned. These mask-wielding assassins, though. And gods, Deka, if any of your relatives want you dead, you've given them a map for the best places to ambush you. And if Mother stints me on an appropriate guard compliment, that's precisely what will happen. He shrugged. As head, she must be seen to at least try to protect the central family, the matriarch's bloodline. To do any less would make her unfit to lead, so she'll likely send a whole legion to escort me. Thus, the two months of travel. Caught in your own trap, poor Deka. He smiled, and I grinned back. Yet I found myself sobering. What if there is an attack, though? Assassins regardless who sends them. A legion of enemy soldiers? I'll be fine. There was arrogance, and there was stupidity. You should be afraid, Deka, no matter how powerful you've become. I've seen this mask magic. It's like nothing the Lataria has prepared you for. I've seen Shavir's notes, and the Lataria has been closely involved in the investigation into this new magical form. The masks are like scrivening, like the gods' language, merely a symbolic representation of a concept. Once one understands this, it is possible to develop a countermeasure, he shrugged. And these mask makers don't know anything about my new magical form. No one does but me. And now you. Um, oh. I fell silent again, awkwardly. Abruptly, Decca smiled. I like this, he said, nodding toward me. You're different now, not just physically. Not so much the brat. Now you're more, he thought a moment. Heartless bastard, I smiled. Obnoxious ass. Tired, he said, and I sobered. Unsure of yourself, the old you is still there, but it's almost buried under other things, fear most noticeably. Inexplicably, the words stung. I stared back at him, wondering why. His expression softened, a tacit apology. It must be hard for you, facing death, when you're a creature of so much life. I looked away. If mortals can do it, I can. Not all mortals do, Sia. You haven't drunk yourself to death yet, or flung yourself into dangerous situations, or killed yourself in any of a hundred other ways. Considering that death is a new reality for you, you're handling it remarkably well. He leaned forward, resting his elbows on his knees, his eyes boring into my own. But the biggest change is that you're not happy anymore. You were always lonely. I saw that even as a child but the loneliness wasn't destroying you back then. It is now. I flinched back from him, my thoughts moving from stunned toward affronted, but they lacked the strength to go all the way there, instead flopping somewhere in between. A lie came to my lips and died. All that remained was silence. A hint of the old self-deprecation crossed Deka's face. He smiled ruefully. I still want to help you, but I'm not sure if I can. You aren't sure you like me anymore, for one thing. I, I blurted. Then I got up and walked away from him, over to one of the windows. I had to. I didn't know what to say or how to act, and I didn't want him to say anything else.
If I'd still had my power, I would have simply left the Lotaria, maybe the mortal realm entirely. As it was, the best I could do was flee across the room. His sigh followed me, but he said nothing for a long while. In that silence, I began to calm down. Why was I so agitated? I felt like a child again, one with jittery buttons dancing on his skin, like an old Tim and Tail I'd heard. By the time Deka spoke, I was almost myself again. Well, not myself, but human, at least. You came to us all those years ago because you needed something, Sia. Not two little mortal brats, I snapped. Maybe not. But we gave you something that you needed, and you came back for it twice more. And in the end, I was right. You did want our friendship. I've never forgotten what you said that day. Friendships can transcend childhood, if the friends continue to trust each other as they grow older and change. I heard him shift in his chair, facing my back. It was a warning. I sighed, rubbing my eyes. The meat and bread sat uneasily in my belly. It was sentimental rambling. Sia. How could he know so much so young? You were planning to kill us. If we became the kind of Aramary who once made your life hell, if we betrayed your trust, you knew you would have to kill us. The oath and your nature would have required it. You told us that because you didn't want to. You wanted real friends, friends who would last. Had that been it? I laughed hopelessly. And now I'm the one who won't last much longer. Sia, if it was like you say, I would have killed Shahar Deka, because she betrayed me. She knew I loved her, and she used me. She, I paused, then looked up at the reflection in the window. My own face in the foreground, pinched and tired, too big as always, shaped wrong, old. I had never understood why so many mortals found me attractive in this shape. In the background, watching me from the couch on which he sat, Deka. His eyes met mine in the glass. I slept with her, I said to hurt him, to shut him up. I was her first, in fact. Little Lady Shar, so perfect, so cute. You should have heard her moan, Deka. It was like hearing the maelstrom itself sing. Deka only smiled, though. It seemed forced. I heard about Mother's plan, he paused. Is that why you didn't kill Shar? because it was mother's plan and not hers? I shook my head. I don't know why I didn't kill her. There was no why. I do what feels good. I rubbed my temples where a headache had begun. And you didn't feel like murdering the girl you loved? God, Staka. I rounded on him, clenching my fists. Why are we talking about this? So it was just lust. The god of childhood leaps on the first half-grown woman he meets who's willing? No, of course not. He sighed and got to his feet. She was just another era Mary then, forcing you into her bed? The look on his face showed that he didn't remotely believe that. You wanted her. You loved her. She broke your heart. And you didn't kill her because you love her still. Why does that trouble you so? It doesn't. I said, but it did, it shouldn't have. Why did it matter to me that some mortal had done precisely what I'd expected her to do? A god should not care about such things, a god, 
should not need a mortal to be happy. Gods. Gods. What was wrong with me? Gods. Deka sighed and came over to me. There were many things in his eyes. Compassion. Sorrow. Anger, though not at me. Exasperation. And something more. He stopped in front of me, and I was not as surprised as I should have been that he lifted a hand to cup my cheek. I did not pull away either, as I should have. I will not betray you, he murmured, much too softly. This was not the way a friend spoke to a friend. His fingertips rasped along the edge of my jaw. This was not the touch of a friend. But I did not think. Oh, gods, was he? I'm not going anywhere either. I have waited so long for you, Sia. I started confused, remembering. Wait, what? where did you hear? Then he kissed me, and I fell. Into him, or he enveloped me. There are no words for such things, not in any mortal language, but I will try. I will try to encapsulate it, confine it, define it, because my mind does not work the way it once did, and I want to understand too. I want to remember. I want to taste again his mouth, spicy and meaty and a little sweet. He had always been sweet, especially that first day, when he looked into my eyes and begged me to help them. I craved his sweetness. His mouth opened and I delved into it, meeting him halfway. I had blessed him that day, hadn't I? Perhaps that was why, now, the purest of magic surged through him and down my throat, flooding my belly, overflowing my nerves until I gasped and tried to cry out. But he would not let my mouth go. I tried to back away, but the window was there. We could not travel to other realms safely. My only choice was to release the magic or be destroyed. So I opened my eyes. Every lantern in the room flared like a bonfire, then burst in a cloud of sparks. The walls shook, the floor heaved. One of the shelves on a nearby bookcase collapsed, spilling thick tomes to the floor. I heard the window frame rattle ominously at my back, and someone on the floor above cried out in alarm. Then Deka ended the kiss, and the world was still again. Darkness and damnation and eighth-blooded unknowing era Mary, demons. Deka blinked twice, licked his lips, then flashed me the sort of elated, look-what-I-did grin I'd once been famous for. That went better than expected. I nodded beyond him. You were expecting this? He turned, and his eyes widened at the fallen shelf, the now smoldering lanterns. One lay on the floor, its glass shattered. As he stared, a scroll that had not dropped with the others fluttered to the shelf below, forlorn. I touched his shoulder. You need to send me back to Shadow. This made him turn around, a protest already on his lips. I gripped his shoulder to make him listen. No, I won't do this again, Deka. I can't. You were right about Shahar. But that's why I, with you, I, I sighed, inexpressibly weary. Why did mortal troubles never wait for convenient times? Gods, I can't do this right now. I saw Deka struggle for a mature response, which heartened me, because it meant that he had not somehow outgrown me at a mere 18 years. He took a deep breath and moved away from me, running a hand through his hair. 
Finally, he turned to one of the tables in the room and pulled out a large sheet of the thick, bleached paper that Scriveners used for their work. He took a brush, inkstone, and stick, and reservoir from a nearby table, and said with his back to me, The way you appeared was God's magic. One of my siblings, your great-grandfather. Ahad was going to love this. Ah. He prepared the ink, his fingers grinding the sigil-marked inkstone back and forth slowly, meditatively. Do you think next time I'll be able to summon you to me the way Shahar did? He was too tense to even attempt subtlety. I sighed and gave him what he wanted. There's only one way to find out, I suppose. May I attempt it? At an appropriate time, of course. I leaned against the window again. Yes. Good. The tension in his broad shoulders eased, just a touch. He began to sketch the sigil for a gait with quick, decisive movements, stunningly fast, compared to most scriveners I had seen. Every line was perfect. I felt the power of it the instant he drew the final line. I may be able to help you. He said this briskly, with a Scrivener's matter-of-fact attachment. I can't promise anything, of course, but the magic I've been designing, my body marking, accesses the potential hidden within an individual. Whatever's happening to you, you're still a god. That should give me something to work with. Fine. Deka set the sigil on the floor and stepped back. When I went to stand beside it, his expression was as carefully blank as if he stood before Remeth. I could not leave things that way between us. So I took his hand, the one I'd held ten years before, when his demon blood had mingled with mine and failed to kill me. His palm was unmarked, but I remembered where the cut had been. I traced a line across it with a fingertip, and his hand twitched in response. I'm glad I came to see you, I said. He did not smile, but he did fold his hand around mine for a moment. I'm not Shahar, Sia, he said. Don't punish me for what she did. I nodded wearily. Then I let go of him, stepped onto the sigil, and thought of South Root. The world blurred around me, leaping to obey Deka's command and my will. I savored the momentary illusion of control. Then, when the walls of my room at Hemen snapped into place around me, I lay down on the bed, threw an arm over my eyes, and thought of nothing but Deka's kiss for the rest of the night.